Let's pray. God, our prayer this morning is simply that of the psalmist. Oh God, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn this morning in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew 19 this morning. Matthew 19. We'll be looking at verses 13 and 15, or 13 through 15. As you turn there, I I would also say as we get started this morning, you may want to just kind of put a mark in in your Bible at at three other passages, or if there's somebody beside you, maybe they can mark one, you can mark one. We're going to look at also this morning Deuteronomy 6. And we'll be in Psalm 78 and Ephesians 6. So we'll, we'll primarily be in Matthew chapter 19, but we will look at those as foundational passages, texts, when we think about children, our responsibility to children. So we'll be in Psalm 78, Deuteronomy 6, and Ephesians 6, trying to give you just kind of a heads up there. You may want to put a thumb there, and we'll, we'll look there later on in the sermon. Yeah, this morning as we, as we get going, I want you to hear Psalm 127. Just listen to this. It's a, a passage that reminds us of the great blessing that children are. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're a blessing. And, and it's, it's a text, we look at Psalm 127, and we come to our text this morning in Psalm 19, verse 13 and 15, that reminds us of God's disposition towards children, his attitudes towards children, that they have great value in his sight, that he cares for children. Right? Many of you know the old children's songs, right? Jesus loves the little children, right? You sang that maybe in VVS as a child growing up, or, or you sang and you know the, the truth of the simple childhood song of Jesus loves me, right? Jesus loves me. We know those tunes. We enjoy those tunes. They're tunes that mark many of our childhoods. They're tunes that we look to and we understand as being true. Children are a blessing from God, and they are valued by God. So we want to think about that this morning. Now, the challenge that we have in the midst of that and understanding that is that we live in a day that really is kind of at odds with that in many ways. In in one way, it's in odds in in, in where it's leading our children to. Children and youth, our our culture is leading you in some ways opposed to the Lord, but it also is opposed in, in the way that, that it really sees, in many ways, children as a, a hindrance, a detriment, something that is a, a burden to you. There's statistics on how much it costs these days to raise a child, that, as, as though we go into it and go, well, I don't know if I have enough money to do that, right? They're, they're seen as something that might interfere with the, the accomplishments and the goals that we have before us, that if, if that comes into my life, if I have a child, that could really deter me from doing what I want to do. We live in a culture that many times has a negative view of kids. Not all the time, right? Not all the time. We also live in a day in which sometimes children are elevated, right? Elevated to a point of what you might even say is idolatry, where everyone's, your life, the life of your home completely revolves around those kids. Nothing else. Everything that happens, everything that's done revolves around kids. It's an interesting day. It's all over the map, right? We've sensed those pulls. We live in a day in which our culture is bringing our kids and the next generation to ungodliness, to things contrary to the Word of God. A culture that's bringing children to embrace materialism as a sign of value. This is how I know I'm valuable. This is how I know I matter if I have all this stuff and the things that I'm told I need to have. We live in a day that's bringing them to see internet influencers as the only authority to listen to. That they would reject the authority of God's word. That they would see authority in general as something that is evil and bad and, and oppressive, yet submitting all the while to 
the internet influencer and what he or she says to them and what he or she says is valuable and meaningful. We live in a day that's bringing children to find their worth and accolades and success. Even in, in our day growing up, that was often the case as adults. We're led to think that our worth is in what we have done, what we've achieved. We live in a day that's bringing children to prize self-expression as the pinnacle of existence. That if I can express myself and my unique individualism, how I'm distinct from all others, then I have reached the pinnacle. It's who I am. And we live in a day bringing our children to reject the reality of truth. It's a difficult day. It's a difficult day we live in. And so in the midst of that context, we come this morning to a passage in which Jesus in ministry is teaching and going about doing his ministry and children are brought to him. And his response is interesting this morning. Let's look at the word of the Lord. Matthew 19, you remember last week he was teaching He is going to Judea towards Jerusalem, and he's teaching on the family, marriage and the family, talking about the issue of divorce specifically. Now, right after teaching about marriage, we read in verse 13, then children were brought to him, that he may lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the children, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. We see here an example of of God's disposition. We read it in Psalm 127 that that children are a reward, a, a blessing, a heritage from the Lord. And here we see the Lord Jesus welcoming them into his presence, into his sight. We know that in 18 verses 1 to 4, 1 to 5, we have that passage where really verse 3 talks about uh, children being a, a, an example, a, a picture of the humility that one has in coming to faith. But here we see an instance where children are brought to him and his response to them is instructive for us, right? He cares for them. He bids them come to me. So let's look at verse 13, the very beginning. Verse 13, we're forced to ask this question that, that what are we bringing our children to? The people in this instance, in this narrative, they're bringing them to Christ that he may lay his hands on them and pray. What are we bringing our children to? Well, we we bring our children to the the things that we believe are valuable. We, We bring our children to the things that we think will benefit them, that are good for them, right? I mean, I I take my kids to the doctor. Why? Not because I want them to get poked and prodded and bleed but because I know that it's good for them. I know it's beneficial for them when they're sick. I I take them to the ball field so that they can compete and they can exercise. I take them to school so they can be educated. We take our kids all over the place, right? We bring them to those things that are valuable, that we believe will help them. The idea of bringing people to Jesus was nothing new, certainly. Think about all the people that were brought to Jesus. Here's just a few. In in Matthew 4, 24, people heard Jesus was teaching. They saw him working miracles. So it says that they brought him all the sick. In Matthew 9, 32, people brought a demon-possessed man, mute man, to Jesus. In Mark 2, 1 to 12, you have the, the passage where the four friends, they bring their friend to Jesus that he might be healed. In Mark 7, 31 to 37, a deaf man is brought to Jesus for healing. In John 1, do you remember when Philip, he meets Christ? And what does Philip do? He goes and gets Nathaniel and brings Nathaniel to meet Jesus. Or what about John 4? Do you remember John 4, the Samaritan woman? When Jesus has that interaction with her at the well, after that interaction, she goes home and tells her friends, her neighbors about Christ that they might come and see. She is bringing them to hear and to meet and to encounter the Lord. People bring people to what they see to be valuable. They are bringing people to Jesus that he might assist them, that he might bless them, that he might heal them, that he might might make known salvation to them. Church, we have a responsibility, adults sitting here, to bring our children to Christ, to bring them to him. 
And that's the question. Are we bringing them to Christ? Are we looking at our kids? Are we looking at the next generation and saying, come, come with me. I want you to know Christ. I want, to, I want you to encounter Christ. Now, why did they bring him? Or why did they bring them? What does it say? It says they brought them to him, right? Why? That he might lay his hands on them and pray. That's a, a simply a, a demonstration of blessing. They are bringing them to Christ that he might lay his hands on them, bless them. The blessing, laying on hands in prayer is a common practice at that time for, for blessing the people. What greater blessing, what greater blessing could they have at that time than to say, come, I want to take you to Christ. But what ble- greater blessing could we have today? What greater way could we bless the next generation than to bring them to the Lord? To bring them to see and behold the Savior. They consider the, the blessings of salvation. That's what Paul wrote about in Ephesians 1. If you sometime today just read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it talks about how great God's glory is in saving us. And listen, in verse 3, he says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are blessed in Christ. To be saved is to be blessed in him. Just as the the people at that day brought their children before the Lord, that he might bless them, shouldn't we bring the next generation to the Lord, that he might bless them in saving them? There's no greater blessing than to know Christ, the eternal riches of Christ. And we need to sometimes, I think, ask questions that we know the answer to, but we need to be reminded of. The question is like, does the temporary success of sports rival the eternal blessings of Christ? Do, do the temporary rewards of, of popularity rival the eternal blessings of Christ? Is the influence on, of social media on the identity of your children, of my children, is that better than them knowing that they're made in the image of God and that God sent forth his son to die on the cross for them, to shed his blood for them. Which is more important? Which is more valuable? I I would say the adults gathering here, most of us in here, adults would say, well, yeah, nothing compares. Nothing compares to knowing Christ. Nothing compares to them knowing the richness of the gospel. I'm not telling you today to to stop taking them to play sports. I'm not telling them you to to stop stop taking them to school. But what I'm telling you and reminding you of is that we must not get so focused on taking our children everywhere and bringing them to this and bringing them to that that we fail to bring them to Christ. Christ. Let us bring them to Jesus if we bring them to nothing else. At least let us bring them to him. And so we continue on and we see an interesting moment. The people bring the kids and what do the disciples do? They rebuke them. They rebuke the people. These are probably parents. We don't know this. The text doesn't say that for sure, but more than likely, these are parents bringing in. The indication is that the children are small because they're bringing them to Christ. And the disciples rebuke them. They, they, they say, what are you doing? Get them away. The Lord doesn't have time. I don't, they don't need to be here right now. They rebuke the people. They are quick to forget Jesus' own example in, in verses 3 and 4 of 18. That, that he uses a child as an example, and they, they forget that. And we're not told why they rebuke him. But for some reason, maybe they thought. Maybe they thought that the kids would distract Jesus. Maybe they thought it would distract the hearers, that, that the kids crying or moving about would distract people from hearing Jesus. Maybe they, they felt like, it, you know, you should talk to the adults here and, and talk to the kids there. Kids weren't highly valued as far as influential in that day. But what we see, though, is we see a hasty rebuke from the disciples met with a heavenly rebuke from Christ. We see him look at them, and he says, no. 
He rebukes them. Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. In Mark, the parallel passage, this passage is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was an important moment in the eyes of the gospel writers. It made an impression upon them. And Mark tells us a little more. He says that Jesus was indignant. He was frustrated that they rebuked the kids, that rebuked the ones that brought them. It says that it bothered Christ. It made him upset that they would be rebuked. Verse 14, what is the invitation? Jesus says, let the children come to me. It's an open invitation of Christ. He didn't pawn them off to the disciples. He didn't say, oh, look, they're, they're bringing kids. All right, um, hey, you guys, um, you know, Peter, John, can, can you hang with the kids for a little bit while I finish up teaching? If you'll watch them, then I'll take care of the rest of the time, and I'll come over and say hey to them, maybe give them a donut later. Right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't pawn them off. He wasn't too busy. He didn't see them as insignificant. The invitation was clear. Let them come. Let them come. Come on. And then what does he say? Don't hinder them. Don't hinder them. The obstacles of man must not be put in front of children. Let us not do anything that would cause them to stumble, that would cause them to be hindered or distracted or sidetracked or prevented from coming to the gospel, to coming to Christ. How might we do that? Have you ever thought about that? How, how, how could we hinder children from coming to Christ? I thought of a few ways. I think one way we could hinder children is hypocrisy in the home. We could greatly hinder children by claiming Christ on Sunday morning while living as a practical atheist throughout the week. Come and sing gospel-rich songs and praise his name and walk out and treat a waiter or a waitress at lunch like you've never heard the name of Christ. Walk out and lead your business in a way that is vindictive and scheming and deceitful. Take part in entertainment that we would never name here. Hypocrisy in the home, a failure to live out the gospel. We claim to believe something, but it's never displayed in the way we live, all the while knowing Knowing that we are called to love as Christ loved in John 13, we're called to forgive as he has forgiven us in Ephesians 4, we're called to endure as he endured to suffer, as he suffered to display mercy as we have received mercy, we're called to do all of those things for the glory of God. We fail to do that, that can undermine, be a hindrance to kids. Why? Why? Because you can't trick a kid or a teenager. Teens, you know this, don't you? You understand it. You know. Nobody has to say, hey, teenagers, let me teach you that a tree is known by its fruit. Teenagers know. They can spot a phony. They can spot a hypocrite. And so when we live one way here and we go home and we live another way, it's a hindrance to our children coming to the Lord. Another hindrance, another way we can hinder them is through idolatry. Idolatry, when we, when we give ourselves over to other things more than God. All our, all our time, all of our, our resources, all of our energy, all of our thoughts, everything that we do is, is invested in, in some sort of secular activity, hobby, or, or goods, and it, it sends a clear message that those things are what you truly worship. Like, Dad, you may say you worship the Lord and, and you preach and all those things, but everything you do is driving towards those things. Everything you talk about is, is that. I think you worship those things. You may be a preacher on Sunday morning. I think you're an idolater through the week. That would be a hindrance to my children coming to trust the Lord. A, th a third way that I think we hinder them is misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. Oh, we, we do the church thing. 
We're religious. We go to stuff. As long as there's nothing better to do. As long as there's nothing else on the schedule, nothing else on the calendar. Then we'll go. It's the, it's the one who consistently gives priority to that which is of temporal importance. Rarely making a sacrifice for that which is of eternal importance. So, going to worship. Sending a kid to camp. Going to disciple now or taking part in fellowships or members meetings or whatever that may be. Gathering for prayer. Studying the word. Reaching out. All of that done if there's nothing else going on. That is a hindrance. A hindrance to children. They see it. They don't miss it. They don't miss it. Now why does Jesus say they should come? He says, let them come. Don't hinder them. Why? For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. This has overtones of 18.3, right? He, he says, for such. Now, it's interesting. I, I think it's intentional. He doesn't say for to these, like these ten children who have come and been brought to me today, these ten children belong to the kingdom of heaven. He says, for such. So he's bringing back to our mind this idea that, that it, it is children who are exemplary of the ones who have placed their faith in Christ, that humble faith, Right? But he doesn't depart from the fact that these children, indeed, these specific children are ones that he welcomes in. We can't miss the immediate action just because what it says in the beginning of chapter 18 and here. But it is true. He is making a point. Bring them. Let them come. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so what does he do? What does he do? Verse 19. He goes his way. He's made his point. Leaves. No. He doesn't just make his point and settle it there. He, he makes his point. He rebukes them. And then what? Then he does what they were brought to him to be done. It says that he laid his hands on them. And then he went away. He blessed them and went away. Now, there's two questions that we need to ask in response to this passage. I read this, this passage and think through it. What does it mean? I need, I need those key words in there, or words that kind of stood out to me this week in studying that, that they brought children to him, right? That, that he says, come to me, right? Let them come to me. Do not hinder them. All those are key statements, key words that kind of stood out in my mind. And it brought two questions to mind. Two questions. Here's the first one. How do we bring children to Jesus? How do we do that? How do we do that? Is there, is there like a, some steps, some methods that we do? I, I don't believe God's word is without instruction here. When we think about how do we bring our children to Jesus? How do, we, how do we bring them before him that they might hear the gospel and respond to the gospel? How do we do that? I think God's word gives us instruction. Here's where we're going to flip to those passages I told you about. There, there's three foundational passages. The first one is Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. It's a foundational teaching and passage we think about bringing our children to the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6, you have what's known as the Shema. As you turn there, you look at verses 4 through 7 really quickly. We won't stay here long. But the Shema was the, the kind of the, the, the line in the sand, the, the statement of belief for the Jew. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, that's the Shema. That's the statement. Now listen to what the instruction is. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. These words... The instructions of the Word of God here to be on our heart, and He's talking to parents. How do we know that? Because He says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. So, parents, these words of the Lord should be on our hearts. We don't just tell them something we don't care about, we don't just tell them something that the preacher said, we don't just tell them something we read, but we tell them what we believe and what we love about Christ. We tell them about what 
we know to be true because we live it out and we follow Christ ourselves. Those words are to be on our hearts. What this passage sets forth is this, is that parents are the primary spiritual leader of their children. Not the only spiritual leader of their children, but they are the primary spiritual leader of children. That's what we see right away here. We see parents called to disciple and to teach their children. And we see it in two ways, right? Two ways, two classic ways. First thing, verse 7, we're to teach them diligently. There's intentionality here that we would have perhaps even a methodic way of teaching them that we don't leave our kids trusting of Jesus or hearing the gospel up to random chance, but we intentionally and strategically put it before them, that we want to tell them about Christ, that we diligently focus, determine, intentional in our efforts to disciple them. It's been described, I thought it was a beautiful picture of this, this word when it says diligently. It's, it's, kinda, it's like an engraver of a monument right? And the engraver just takes a hammer and he's chiseling away and, the, and, and he's, he's busting away the, the difficult parts. It's described as, as one who takes that painstaking care and, and, and chisels away a, a, a bust of a man and, and it's difficult. Or it's a solid piece of granite in which one chips away and chisels away and with great intentionality and focus and determination keeps on hammering and chiseling until the word of the Lord is chiseled upon the heart of his child. Diligently. Teach them diligently. But also, what does it say in verse 8? We are also, to, or I'm sorry, later in verse 7, we are to teach them as we go. It says, teach them diligently and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Whether you're coming or going, talk about the Lord. When you begin the day, speak of the Lord. When you end the day, speak of the Lord. What this is saying is simply as you go about your day, may it be marinated in the things of Christ and the things of the gospel. As you see the sunset, as you drive along to school, as you drive to practice, as you have dinner, as you have breakfast, as you sit around and you watch TV or whatever you do, you play games, may those be seasoned conversations full of God's grace and truth. When things come up that you're ready to speak of the Lord, just like you would be ready to speak of other things you love, right? So Deuteronomy 6 lays a strong foundation. How do we do that? We do it diligently we do it as we go another passage is psalm 78 psalm 78 lays a solid foundation we think about how do we do this how do we bring our children to the lord psalm 78 is a is a beautiful psalm it's a, a psalm that really um, calls the people of god to pass on their faith to the next generation and we see four truths there psalm 78 we won't read the whole psalm because it's really long it's um 72 72 verses, but the first eight verses are kind of the summary that tell you the importance of the remainder because the verses 9 to 72 is all bad examples of God's people, how they failed and rebelled against God. So the first eight verses, here's what we read. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So he's calling the people of God, right? He's calling them to listen he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So we're going to tell them the stories, right? We're going to tell them the stories. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, but we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget his work or the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And then the remainder of the psalm tells about descriptions of how they were not steadfast to the Lord, how they were not faithful to God. And there's some things we see here that are important. We think about how do we bring our children to the Lord? The first thing is we see there's a, there's a community responsibility here. 
The psalmist is speaking to the people of God. He says, we will not hide them. We will tell to the coming generation. He calls the people of God to listen, to hear. This is what we're going to do. There's resolve there. He says, we're going to do this no matter what. We're going to do it. God's told us to do it. We see the importance of it. We're going to tell the next generation about Christ. We're going to tell them of the glorious works of the Lord. So we see a community responsibility. We also see a parental responsibility, right? Look at, uh, um, goodness, where is there? Is verse 5. There's a parental responsibility. It says he established, God established a testimony. He appointed a law, and he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Now, where in the world would he have done that? We just read it. Deuteronomy 6, right? He commanded the fathers to teach their children. So there's a community responsibility of the people of God, the church. There's a parental responsibility in the home. Parents and church should work together to pass the Lord on to the next generation. It's not church versus parents. It's not parents shoveling kids off to the church. It's not the church going, well, this isn't our responsibility. It is church and home working together for the good of children and the next generation, the glory of God. So we see a community responsibility, a parental responsibility. We also see a certain content that is to be taught, that is to be proclaimed. Right? We're to tell them, verse 4, of the glorious deeds of the Lord, of his might, of the wonders that he's done. We're to tell them of the, the law that's been appointed and commanded, the testimony that he's been given to Jacob. We're to tell them of the word of God and the works of God. That's what we're to proclaim. We're not here just to tell the next generation, here's how to be successful. Right? Here's how to make it in this world. Well, obviously, we want them to do that. We want them to be successful. I want my kids to be successful. I want them to make it in the world. But you know, ultimately, what I want them to know is that God is a great and a mighty and an awesome and a holy and a powerful God. And he has done great and mighty and awesome and holy things. I want them to know that. And supreme of all that is that he has created you and he has redeemed you through the blood of Christ. I want them to know that, Right? Because we see the content, but then Psalm 78 also gives us the goal. What's the goal? What's the goal of our teaching? I mean, the goal of education in K through 12 is what? It's not a trick question. We, graduation, right, Arthur? That's, okay. Making sure I didn't miss that one. Everybody's like, oh, we don't know what the goal is. <laughs> Maybe that's indicative of our day. I don't know. We're not sure. The goal is what? We want to see them graduate. We want to see them trained and ready to go out into the workforce and further education. What's the goal of our teaching of our children about Christ? Is it that they would be nice little religious Pharisees walking around with a big Bible? They would dress nice? It, they wouldn't do whatever in your mind is the most terrible thing they could possibly do? No. The goal is very clear. Verse 6, that the generation might, next generation might know the truths and the glory of God, the children unborn, and rise and tell them to their children. Why? So that they should set their hope in God. What's the goal? That they might trust the Lord. That they might set their hope in Christ. What's the goal of your parenting? What's the goal of the children's and youth ministries? What's the goal of this church when we think about the next generation? We're called to missions. We're, we're called to make disciples. We're called to advance the gospel to all nations. Heaven forbid we do that and forget the kid tucked in down the hall. The goal is that we make disciples in our families, in our community, and the nations, that they might place their trust in the Lord. One more passage that's foundational to answer that question, how do we bring them to the Lord? How do we bring them before Him? Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, over and towards the back of the Bible now, the New Testament. As you're turning there, here's one of the important things about reading Ephesians 6. And there's other passages in the New Testament, Colossians 3, 1 Peter. When we come into the New Testament, here's what's important. 
the instructions and the teaching and the commands of the Old Testament are the same in the New Testament. Just because the church is here and we have pastors and preachers doesn't mean that, hey, now parents don't have any responsibility. You know, we can just sit back and let the pros do it. No. The responsibility is the same. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4 gives instructions to the home, to parents, to children, right? It begins by children. This is your responsibility, but specifically 4, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It's a very quick and a very simple statement there that's loaded with depth and meaning. Responsibility. That we're to bring them up. We're not to provoke them to anger, but we're to, to bring them up. And, and literally, it's bring them up from, to nourish them out of. That's what it would be literally. That we're to bring them up out of the ways of the world. That we are to nourish them out of the darkness that they live in. We're not to drive them to anger. We're not to drive them to be exasperated. We're not to be heavy-handed parents. It's set in contrast to that, right? This contrast is do not provoke them to anger, your children to anger, but don't do that. But what should I do? I should bring them up out of. I should nourish them out of the world. Well, how do I do that, Paul? What does that look like? What do you mean by that? Well, he says, he, he says, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord or the admonition of the Lord, the nurture, the training of the Lord. He gives us two ways there. They were to bring them up in the, the discipline of the Lord. That, that refers to this general education and teaching of children. It is, it's the, honestly, I think the, the Christian Standard Bible or even the KJV probably gets the meaning of that word a little better. Where The KJV says to nurture them. The Christian Standard is training, right? It, it, it helps us to understand the meaning of that word a little easier there, to understand it there in the English, nurture or training, not just discipline like it's correct, corrective, because the second word is more of a correcting term for parenting, this, uh, we're to bring them up in the nurture of the Lord, this general education, teaching them of the Lord, and then also the instruction of the Lord, which refers to the verbal correction and correcting the perhaps a rebuke and admonition in the Lord. So the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, you might have heard it said before. That's how we bring them up. There are moments which they need to be corrected. There are moments where we need to correct wrong thinking with the truth. And say, here is why it's wrong. Here's what God has set forth. We need to speak that to our children. There is truth. They need to know it. Bring them up in it. Listen, I think the bottom line at this point, how do we bring them to the Lord? Parents, you and I have the primary responsibility to do that in the lives of our children. We're not alone. We're not alone. The church is here with us to spur us on. The church is here to encourage us because it is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. It's racked with days of great joy and celebrating and triumph. It's racked with days of great difficulty and trial and sorrow and grief and failures. And there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. But we're called to bring them before the Lord. May we faithfully do that in the ways that the Scripture teaches us to do it. The second question then, if we, how do we do it? That's how we bring them. What do we do? So we bring them to Christ. What do we do when they come? That's another question. That I just looked at the text and I was just thinking about it this week. And he says, let them come. Well, what do we do when they come to Christ? When a child comes to Christ, we let them come. We always encourage faith and the work of God in their lives. Always. We see a child come and express faith. We should encourage that. We should be excited about that. That one who Ephesians said is dead in transgression and sin is showing evidence of wanting Christ. That should be cause for rejoicing. That we would encourage that, look forward to that. The task that we have, though, is what? 
in the midst of that, in the midst of encouraging faith, we want to make sure and be good stewards that a child is making a credible profession of faith. And we think about them coming. We, we want to be diligent in that and careful in that. Not in a way to stomp out faith or to discourage faith. We want to encourage it, but we do want to be discerning. In, in the 4th century, when Constantine brought Christianity in to be the state religion of Rome, you had an interesting occurrence in that time. What happened was prior to that, if someone said they were a Christian, they were making a very bold stand and some serious things could come upon them. Serious consequences, perhaps their own life, they'd be drug in the Colosseum, some bad things happen, right? Persecution was very real. Well, Constantine, when he makes Christianity the state religion of the church, it changes this. So now all of a sudden, what do you have? Droves of people are just coming into the church. I want to be a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. They're just checking it off. And so in that time, what happens is the church realizes we've got to be careful now because now people are just coming. They're coming for all the wrong reasons. They're just coming to get in the church. And so at that time, you, you have things like catechisms begin and, and leaders that are saying, hey, listen, we need to be careful. We need to be discerning to make sure someone understands the gospel, what it means to trust Christ. Have they made a credible profession of faith? It was something that became mandatory in that time. Friends, we need to understand contextually that we live in a, a similar day. We're maybe walking out the door of that day. But historically, the recent, recent history, we've been very similar. It's very easy to say I'm a Christian in our day, especially in the Bible Belt. It's very easy to profess Christ and to follow Him. No one's waiting outside to persecute you when you walk out in the parking lot today. So we need to be discerning. We need to make sure that when one comes to Christ, that we're being a good steward of the children in our midst. And the reason this is important to be said is this is something that's been abused over the years. Because it's really easy to look at a group of kids and say, hey, would you like to go to heaven? Just raise your hand if you'd like to go to heaven. And what kid is not going to raise their hand? How easy it is to just say, let's, let's say this prayer. Let me tell you about all the good things, all the hope, all the peace, all the benefits of Christianity and following Christ. And now I'm going to say a prayer and you just repeat after me. And now raise your hand if you repeated that prayer. You are, oh, I'm so, and boom, right into them, and then baptize them. That's been very abused by the church abroad. We need to recognize that. We need to recognize that. At the same time, we don't need to look at that and go, you know what, a child can never come to faith in Christ. We don't need to be shackled by fear and have such a knee-jerk reaction that we never look and go, well, you're just too young. You can't really trust Christ. We simply need to be Mindful of being good stewards of the next generation that God has placed in our midst. Here's some things I think we need to keep in mind quickly. We think about a kid coming to Christ, okay? First, is we need to make sure they're truly coming to Jesus and not to something else. Make sure they're truly coming to Christ. That they're not coming to, uh, to, to make a decision to make you as a parent happy. Oh, I know dad really wants this. I... And so I'm going to do it just because it'll make him happy or, or make sure they're not coming because they saw a lot of kids in their class do it in Sunday school or even at school or the kids they hang out with. And, oh, well, they all did. I, I want to I go and get baptized and I want to be a Christian too. All right, make sure they're coming for the right reasons. That They're not coming to just religion or something else. But they're coming to Jesus. They're placing their faith in Jesus. The second thing we need to do is we need to clearly discuss the biblical gospel with them. Like, take the time, sit down with them. What is the gospel? Let's talk about that. Let me share that with you. Make sure you understand the gospel. How, how would you explain the gospel? What do you think when you hear the gospel? What's the good news about Jesus? 
Let them tell you what is their understanding. Have them explain it in their own words. Next thing I would say is we need to ask the right kind of questions in those times. When a child comes, don't just ask a yes or no question. Do you want to get saved? Yeah. I mean, again, who would say no to that? No, I'd rather not. Yeah, of course they do. Do you want to go to heaven? Yeah. Right? Easy. Yes, no questions can get you in trouble. Ask them open-ended questions instead. Ask them questions that, that are something like, man, that's wonderful. I'm so excited that you want to trust Christ. You want to come to Christ. Tell me about that. What makes you want to do that? What did you hear? What is God doing in your life? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Man, you, you said something about sin. What is sin? How do you, how, what do you think that is? How would you explain sin to me? Like if it was your friend and, you know, at school says something, how would you tell them about sin? Ask them open-ended questions that allows them to tell you things in their own words. What do you think it means to believe? What does faith mean? As you do that, right, here's the next thing, is don't do so expecting them to talk like you. They're not seminary graduates. They haven't rolled out of 20 years of Sunday school or reading the latest whatever book you read. They're not going to have all the Christianese terms and the big, you know, uh, eations right? Reconciliation, justification, all the Asians, right? They're not going to have all the Asians down yet. So if you're sitting there going, oh, wow, they didn't say anything about propitiation. I don't think he's a believer. <laughs> Listen, wake up, brother. Man, don't expect them to talk like a theologian or even like you. Let them explain it in their own words. We're not looking for key words. We're looking for them to have a understanding of the good news of Christ and of what it means to biblically respond to him. Understand, they understand the gospel and, and the key concepts. We, that's what we want them to understand. They know what repentance is and faith is. Final thing I would say is this, is don't proceed one way or the other out of fear. Don't let fear determine how you move forward when a child expresses that they want to trust Christ and come to faith. And what I mean by that is this. Don't be so afraid of, uh, of the idea that, oh, i got to get them up there now. What else? Something might happen. I, if I don't tell the church, they're not going to really be saved. i got to get them out. i got to get them in front. Don't be so afraid of that. Don't be af so afraid that because they haven't made a decision that you're just pushing, 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 pushing right? There's a difference between inviting and appealing and pushing. At Gardner, um, Gardner Spring, a, a, a pastor a couple hundred years ago, I can't remember when he lived, I think it was 18th or 19th century pastor, he wrote a little book called Hints for Parents. I'll never forget something he wrote in there. He was talking about the importance of appealing and leading your kids to the Lord, and he said that there is nothing wrong with your kids knowing that you weep daily for their salvation. There's nothing wrong with that. They should know that you long for them to trust Christ. You long to see them follow him. Nothing wrong with that. When you cry over a buzzer beater to LSU and then you're bouncing off the walls yesterday, let them see the passion you have for the gospel. Let them see the passion you have for Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. But in so doing, don't be so afraid that I'm just pushing them right through the door to get them to make a decision. But also... Parenting out of fear. Don't just hold them back for years and years and years because I'm afraid that what if I'm wrong? What if they were to turn away? What if, what if, what if? Listen, ultimately, you don't know. There's been adults that have stood before me, I've shared the gospel with and talked about and discipled, and I would have, I mean, it's, yeah, they're a believer. And years down the road, they showed that they were not. We can't parent out of fear. God is able to save. And we trust Him to save. Right? So we trust Him to do that. I, I want to just mention to you, before we close, 
we, the elders have put together just a, a document that we think will be helpful on this note. And it's just kind of a, a brief statement and help and guide on when we think about baptism of children and youth, children and teens at Grace. How do we do that? We have parents go, what's the process? What do we do? How do we know? How do we, you know what do we do? And so we just put together a front and page document that we believe will help you clarify some of those questions. What does it look like? What, do you, what should you do? What's the process? Is my kids asking questions? What do I do now? We just lay that out to help you know what's next. What do we do? What are our practices here to make sure that we are ensuring that, that children or, or teens are making a credible profession of faith? How do we do that? And I was thinking, thinking this week about the reality. You know, I can, I can go this week or in the next few weeks, I guess, as it warms up, and I can buy an apple tree sapling and plant it and know that it's an apple tree because there's some identifying marks of an apple tree, right? The leaves and bark right away. We know. We can look. We can do our study. Now, when they're really young, it's hard to tell that. As they get a little older, we can look and we can see that it's an apple tree. Down the road, it's going to bear fruit and bear apples. And it's going to produce bountiful apples, right? Hopefully. But I don't plant it and go, well, I'm going to wait about five years and figure out if it's an apple tree or not. At the onset, there are things I look for to know if it's an apple tree. I think it's similar. Every illustration breaks down, right? We need to be diligent parents adults to make sure a child or teen is making a credible profession of faith that they understand what the gospel truly is and they're responding to that in a way that the scriptures have said to respond in repentance and faith it's kind of like the bark and the leaves to discern a credible profession of faith and we're not going to just push them rush them through that be diligent to disciple them in that. Discipleship is key in that process. But at the same time, we're not expecting them to be a Christian who's showing the fruit of a 30-year-old child of God when they're not. Let's faithfully bring the next generation to Christ here at Grace. And let's be good stewards of them when they come to direct their faith to the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we close this morning,